Well, imagine that you could travel back in time and observe your life 10, 20, 30, maybe for some of you 40, 50 years ago, kind of a back to the future experience. I can do that a little bit. I can rewind. I can rewind back, let's say, into my teenage years, and I can kind of picture what life was like, and I can remember the experiences. And I want you to do that for a moment with regard to your possessions. And I just want you to think about maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago and compare what you had back then to what you have now. You thinking about it? I'm thinking about it. So I'm comparing my, my house, my vehicles, the money in my bank account to let's say what I had when I was 15. It's dramatically different. When I was 14, I was offered my first permanent part-time job. I delivered newspapers prior to that, but I had my first permanent part-time job. And I, would, I was hired by a guy to deliver. I lived up in Cambridge at the time. The water's very hard there. Everybody has water softeners. I was hired to deliver water softener salt on Saturday morning. So you take 10 bags, you throw them on your shoulder one at a time, you walk down people's basements, you drop them off, you come back up, you get another one, and then you go to the next customer. So we deliver water softener salt. And I would work for about four hours and I would get paid $12 for four hours of work. Then my boss liked my work ethic. So he says, I will hire you full time, 40 hours a week to work as a plumbing assistant, but I'm only going to pay you $100 a week, 20 bucks a day. It was quite, quite a bit below minimum wage, but I'm like, okay, I'll do it. So I worked 40 hours a week for a hundred bucks. And then you get your deductions off, right? And back then that was like, this is incredible. Well, I, I, I wouldn't deliver 70 or 80 bags of water softener salt today for 12 bucks. And I wouldn't work for anybody 40 hours a week for a hundred bucks. But back then that's what I had. And I got to tell you this, I'm no more content now with my possessions than I was then. Now ask yourself this question. As you think back to maybe times in your life where you had a fraction of what you have now, are you really more satisfied with what you have now compared to what you used to have? You might be more comfortable, but in your heart and soul, do we really ever get more satisfied when we acquire more things? Ask a second question. To what extent would you go to keep your possessions? How, how tightly do you hold on to them? Would, would you be willing, as we've already discussed prior to the message, to be coerced against your conscience? To retain possessions? Because you can't imagine living without them? Would you do that? What motivates you in your pursuit of possessions? Is it because you want to steward your life, live a life of generosity, provide for your family? Or is it possible as you assess your heart that there's a certain satisfaction, a certain loneliness that is, that is overcome temporarily by the accumulation of wealth or a certain void in your life that's there that you know, a little more money temporarily fills what, what is the role of money and possessions in satisfying you? Another question would be, how much, a little bit of a haunting question, 
how much of what you own has actually been acquired as a result of committing the sin of covetousness? Maybe it's hard to quantify entirely, but it's a, it's a question worth thinking about. Now, there's no shame in having possessions or wealth. God stewards as he chooses, much to some, a little bit less to others, a very little to others, and we're all responsible to stand before God, whether we get one talent or 10 and steward our possessions. So there's nothing innately wrong with wealth and possessions, but there is something wrong with holding on to them like this. So we've been studying the 10 commandments as a church and we're on the 10th commandment today. And it's the commandment that relates to covetousness. And it confronts us and challenges us to ask, are we coveting the possessions of life? Are we committing the sin of holding like this too tightly to our possessions or wanting things that God has not yet stewarded to us? Is it possible that this is a sin in our own lives? Well, join me in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And what we're going to learn here is that God wants us to exchange covetousness for contentment. He wants us to exchange covetousness for contentment. The commandment reads as follows in Exodus chapter 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Commandments one to four really protect the holiness of God. Commandments five to nine protect external relationships. But commandment 10 really is about something very personal. It's our attitude, our outlook on possessions. So it's, it's one of those things that can be difficult to assess. I mean, if, you're, if you've murdered someone, it's kind of obvious. If you've perjured yourself in court, it's kind of obvious. If you've committed adultery, it's, it's kind of obvious. Those other sins are, are obvious to identify. If you blaspheme God's holy name, it's obvious. But covetousness is, is an internal thing. It's an attitude. And so we, we need to exercise some discretion and discernment here to see if it happens to be present in our lives. And the other thing about covetousness, unlike some of these other sins, is you can be committing it and no one else might know. So there's not really any legal consequences. I don't know of anyone that's ever been locked up, put in jail, fined because, oh, they were declared to be guilty of the sin of covetousness. Various societies throughout time have even put people to death for adultery or put people to death for murder or locked people up for theft. This is one of those sins that we can sort of get away with and others may not know, but it's still a sin and it does eat away at our walk with God. In many respects, one could also argue that covetousness is in some way attached to every other sin. When humans go to war, murder, rape, steal, adulterate, dethrone God, gossip, slander, attempt to take one, another person's life, another person's possessions, another person's body, another person's reputation, there, there is a certain jealous envy that's usually attached to those sins. And in this sense, on an attitudinal level, coveting 
may actually be in part at the root of every other sin that appears in the list of the Ten Commandments. Something to think about. By disbelieving that God has something better for those that wait, we go ahead and take that which isn't ours, or we go ahead and try to reduce the holiness of God, or we disobey God because we we're not sure he's good. We think that God maybe is the, you know, the cosmic killjoy and we have something better in store for us. So there's, I think there's a sense in which covetousness is usually in some way tied to the violation of every other sin. So what is covetousness, by the way? We see in the 17th verse of Exodus 20 that it appears twice. The Hebrew word here is hamad. And in Exodus 20, this word means to long after or to desire earnestly. So it's not just, oh, I'd like to have that or I desire that. It's, it's, a, it's a perpetual kind of longing for. It's, a, it's something that eats away at you. It's different than saying, you know what? I feel like going for an ice cream cone. Or you know what? I think I'm going to go out and you know, look for a new vehicle. This is like a fixation. It's a desire for something that's, that's rooted in sinfulness. Now, you know that the Ten Commandments is also listed in Deuteronomy chapter five. And there, this commandment is repeated almost word for word, but a different word is used in the Hebrew for covetousness. It's the word titawa. And this word has another little nuance to it, which is important to help us to understand covetousness, this word expresses emotions apart from outward acts. Emotions apart from outward acts. So while Exodus 20 is a little more general, Deuteronomy is helpful in that it encourages the reader to understand that it's actually possible to commit emotional sins. So Covetousness doesn't mean that you're actually successful at getting what you want. So you can't say, well, you know, I really wanted my neighbor's wife, but I didn't actually act on it. So I haven't violated the 10th commandment. No, the, the, the desire in and of itself is sin. Not just the taking of someone else's wife or possessions, but the desire in and of itself is sin. So we can't just deny that we've violated this commandment if we haven't bothered physically, tangibly acting on it. We also have to concern ourselves with attitudes of the heart. Now, because feelings and emotions are in some ways hard to harness, hard to lasso, hard to control. You find that? Like you're, you're angry. Like, I don't want to be angry, but I, I'm feeling very angry. What do I do with it, Lord? I'm coveting. I, I don't want to covet, but how do you make emotions go away? I mean, I can, I can take my hands off of someone else's possessions, but how do I stop the, the desire for someone else's possessions? How do you make emotions go away? You ever thought about that? Very simply, you replace them with virtue. So in order to overcome covetousness, for example, you have to 
avail yourself of another emotion, and that's contentment, satisfaction. So we don't just wish it away. We have to overcome covetousness with contentment. So a rough analogy is if you have a bucket and it has air in it, how do you get the air out of the bucket? Do you blow at it? No, that'll just add more air. Do you, do you just try to scoop it out with your hands? No, there's, there's always going to be air in there. You add water. The water, fill it right to the brim, will displace the air. We'll push it out. We'll make air in the bucket impossible. And the way to get covetousness out of your life is to fill your life with contentment. Or you'll just continue to covet after something else. It's critically important for us to think about. So what we, do, what we need to do in order to develop that attitude is to adopt the attitude expressed by great men of the faith, like the apostle Paul, for example. Here's what Paul said in Philippians chapter four, verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need. He's talking about his, his physical needs, his, his, his lack at times. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, what's the next word? Content. A few verses later, we discover how he was able to have that attitude. So this is Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So, aha. We're following the trail of breadcrumbs. We have covetous feelings. We're trying to replace it with contentment. We want that. Paul says he was able to receive that, to put that into practice. How? Because he believed that God would provide all of his needs. So you will be content to the degree, if you think of it as a scale, to which you actually believe that God will supply all of your needs. So really... What covetousness is, is it's a lack of faith. That's what it is. It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of believing that God will provide for people who are faithful to him. So when you're under pressure, bills are coming due. How am I going to get through this? I'm going to go, I'm going to, I wish I was like that person. Man, I wish I had what they had. It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, there's another little gem added to this where Paul says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. So this, this motivates, because now it's like, okay, hmm, if God's word is true, what God's word is telling me is if I can overcome covetousness, replace it with contentment, in order for that to happen, I need to be a man of faith. The end result will be Ah, this is actually pretty good. On the other side of overcoming covetousness, life is better. It's always better when we get there. But if we remain covetous, we're always going to be kind of worked up. We're going we're to feel hollow inside. Something is going to be missing. Now, interestingly, we, we do learn this progressively. Paul had to learn this because by nature, he... Me, you, we're drawn to covetousness. 
So it's something we're learning, right? And an example of Paul having learned this is found in Romans chapter seven, verses seven to eight, where he said of himself, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. This is kind of important. Sin reveals, like we're studying the 10 commandments, why? To reveal sin, to reveal our inadequacy. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet, but sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, which means minimally as Paul exposed himself to to the law of God and allow God to shine his light into the inner recesses of his heart. He's like, oh my word, I'm more covetous than I thought. I have less faith than I thought. I'm more reliant upon the things of the world than I thought. So the word of God functions as a flashlight in the darkness. It, It reveals things about us that we might not otherwise appreciate. It's like everybody kind of looks great when the lights are low. But when you turn the lights up, you're like, huh. That's the function of God's law. God's law reveals our inadequacy, but then it enables us to go to God and find the solution. So first he's exposed to sin through God's law, which is one of the goals of biblical preaching. And then we're exposed to God's grace, which, is enable, which enables us to overcome it. So if you want to trade covetousness for contentment, you have to grow in your faith that God will ultimately provide for you. Now we need to get real specific. So there's two, two kind of categories of covetousness that are addressed in this, in this passage. And one is, with regard to possession. So we're going to ask the question, each of us, are you content with your possessions? So look at the text again. It says, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. Fast forward. It's male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that is in your, that is your neighbor's. So (laughs) how many of you have neighbors who own oxen? who have male servants and female servants. Like, well, this doesn't apply then. Well, we need to contemporize this application. In the ancient Near East, to have servants working for you, to have oxen to plow your fields. These were common commodities. And so God uses those in the 10th commandment, but we we need to contemporize them into our, current world, and we're, we're able to do that because you see that other word there, or anything. This is all-encompassing, anything. So anything, your neighbor's lawnmower, <clears throat> your neighbor's fancy sports car, anything that your neighbor has, we are told to refrain from coveting. Now, a neighbor refers not just to people that live on your block. So we we tend to live in neighborhoods. Many live in neighborhoods. So we think, oh, well, a guy that's five doors down, that's not my neighbor. The guy that lives next to me is my neighbor. And the guy on this side is my neighbor. And the guy behind me is my neighbor. Once you get a ways down the street, they're not my neighbor anymore. This is a very limited contemporary understanding of what a neighbor is. 
A neighbor refers to your fellow countrymen, your family, and your friends. It's, a, it's an all-encompassing term. And therefore, the commandment is basically saying you cannot covet anyone else in the world's stuff. Anyone else in the world's stuff. Now, we could differentiate, I suppose, between coveting and simply wanting something new or needing something. There's a a difference there. One, just wanting to buy something doesn't mean you're, you know, you have to have it to feel better about yourself or it already belongs to someone else or, you know, you're not trusting in the Lord. I mean, all of us purchase things on a regular basis, but we have to really, again, monitor our hearts. And some of you are great at monitoring your hearts. You're very discerning. You're, you're kind of intuitive. You're introspective. You're, you're aware of your emotional responses to life. You sort of have a, uh, a discerning spirit, uh, a tender conscience. And maybe some of you aren't so much like that, but we all need to move in that direction and have a tender conscience before God and discern and evaluate. Okay, so when, I'm, when, I, when I see this in the flyer or when I, you know, I see it on amazon.ca and I'm, and I'm about to buy it or, or, or my neighbor says, hey, look what I bought. Like what is going on in my heart in that moment? What's going on in my heart in that moment? And what is that thing over there doing for me? So if I'm, if I'm drifting from the Lord, I'm not availing myself of the spiritual disciplines. My, my life is sort of, maybe I'm under a lot of stress and pressure. And these things can be like, oh, that's a little bit of a rush. Like this, this actually makes me feel good. Okay, that folks is covetousness right there. Because it's, it's fulfilling a role that only God can fulfill. When, when, we, when our kids were young, you know, we take them to, grocery stores and dollar stores and whatever else. And you know what kids are like, the, especially the little ones. I want that, I want that, I want that. All the way down the aisle, it's like, I want everything, right? And generally you're like, okay, you can have one thing for a buck or something. <clears throat> but then they want more. They're never satisfied. It's like, I just, I just want everything. I want everything. We're just more subtle about it as adults, but aren't we still kind of the same? We just want everything. You know, we just want everything. And we're even, we even live at a point in history where, where many folks have so much wealth, they actually go out shopping with no objective in mind. That's historically rather unprecedented. So it's like, I have some money. I don't need anything. Nothing's even on my mind. I'm just going to go out and find something to spend it on. I, I'm just going to go walk to the mall, and if I set my eyes on something that I want, I'm just going to buy it. This is, we've probably all done it on some level. I tend to do it at Princess Auto, okay? Full confession, okay? You know, don't want to present myself as too spiritual. Princess Auto, I'm just going to go and buy something. (laughs) My wife, by the way, thinks that Princess Auto is like the worst store in the entire planet. And I think it's probably the best store on the entire planet, but men and women are obviously very different. We need to be careful though, that in receiving these things or taking these things, they don't poison our souls. A guy by the name of Bob James illustrated the poison of, of um, 
covetousness this way. He, he said, you know, there's an individual, they had, a, they had a problem with ants. They found an ant hill on their property. The ants were in, in and out of the house. So they sprinkled poison around in a circle around the ant hill. And the ants would start to take it into their home thinking it was, you know, sweet and would help them. And, um, you know, eventually they poisoned themselves. But what he also noticed as he watched the ants is it was ants from another colony that were coming over and taking the sweets from around this ant mound back to their colony and also poisoned themselves. And I was just thinking about that. You know, many of the things that we want that others have, they're already poisoning themselves with. They don't really even need it, but we feel we want it because it's somehow going to act differently in our lives and in their lives. They're poisoned by it. We end up being poisoned by it as well. So again, there's a call for us to be discerning here. If we've locked our eyes into someone else's stuff, unlock them and lock your eyes upon what God has provided for you. So covetousness in terms of possessions. And then there's a second area of covetousness, which sort of relates to the whole sexual, emotional, relational aspect of our humanity. And then we ask ourselves this question, are we content with our spouse? So in the middle of this verse, it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So this in ancient times would have been read by men in public. So it identifies the wife. But if you're a woman, you also have to substitute the word for husband, right? So this is not just for guys. This cuts both ways. Well, we know that many marriages have been wrecked by covetousness. And perhaps this command has been broken, you know, more times than we could possibly count through human history. You know, young people grow up, they're like, ah, oh, man, I'd love to get married. I'd love to get married. They fall in love. They find the ultimate person. And then five years later, we're like, eh, I like her better. Or I like him better. And then marriages are destroyed by it and children are affected by it. And you know what's interesting about the, uh, the reality of divorce and, and the compromise of marriage? I, I know a lot of divorced people and even wonderful people that are Christians that have found repentance and new life in Christ. But they would even say to you, there's always a certain pain and scar that you carry around with you for the rest of your life always there. You know, my mom would tell you that. My mom's divorced. My, my mom and dad are divorced. 30, 40 years later, it, it's still, it's a scar. And then it affects children. I remember years ago, I was um, at a camp and I was talking to, you know, a couple little boys and I asked like, are you guys are you guys brothers? And they're like, well, yeah. Oh, okay, so your brother says, great. So, well, well, like, like his dad is with my mom, right? This is very common. It's just part of the world. And I know many of you come from those kinds of experiences. I'm not issuing judgment upon your circumstance. I'm just saying, we all know this is not good. Nobody desires, should desire this. It's, it's not good. But adultery stems ultimately from covetousness. Well, that person's more sensuous or they're more sensitive or they're more compatible 
or they're more available. I mean, there's all kinds of excuses we come up with. Then my spouse. And these are all lies from the devil, from our flesh that will destroy us. We need to raise tall boundaries around our marriages to protect them. We need to guard our minds, guard our eyes, guard our mouths, guard the messages that we text back and forth or email back and forth. We need to guard our relationship. We don't need to walk around in you know, eggshells. I'm terrified. I hope, hope no women come within six feet of me. You know, I don't talk to women. You know? Not like that. That can actually make it worse. Kind of legalism. But we do need to have healthy boundaries around us. So we view even in the church, our fellow church people as brothers and sisters. So you should be as interested in running off with another sister in Christ, guys, as you would in running off with your sister. It's incestuous. Well, if you truly view others in the church as your brothers and sisters, you're going to treat them that way. Good boundary for you to have in, in your life. So while no marriage is going to be perfect, we all know from experience and talking to Christian couples that have actually found contentedness with one person for life, that it's wonderfully unique and it's fulfilling. And we should pursue that. Promiscuity doesn't satisfy. It will only lead you to a hellish place that will gnaw away at your soul and erode it. So if you failed in this area, you don't justify it. You repent of it. And then you warn others. Dude, I did that and it, it wasn't great. Don't do it. I'm telling you, don't do it. Not, oh, I want to hide my story. I don't want anybody to know about my past sins. You repent of it and you warn people. It's not worth it. Stay faithful to the one that the Lord has given to you. Well, we know that following God's commands are not always easy, but they always ultimately please and satisfy us. When it comes to covetousness, in many respects, we're also victims because we live in a world where like individuals and also spiritual powers constantly falsely market a product to us that's fake and doesn't satisfy. So you know, you know the term like false advertising? You know what that means? False advertising? You ever been the victim of false advertising? Years ago, I had this guy come to my house and he sold me a whole bunch of coupons for oil changes, discounted oil changes at a garage down the road from us. And when I went to redeem them, the owner was like, oh, well, uh, well we're, it's only worth one oil change. I'm like, dude, the cost of the card is like one oil change. Like the reason why I paid this in advance is so I could get multiple oil changes at a discount. It's got your name on it. Oh, well, oh, well, well, the guy that I arranged this marketing thing with, we kind of had a misunderstanding and he, he ripped me off. False advertising. I wouldn't have bought it in the first place. I never went back to the guy. If you want to ask me later, I'll give you his number and address so you don't go there. <laughs> you feel ripped off. Well, Coveting's the ultimate false advertiser, what we dupe ourselves. We convince ourselves, oh, if I just have a little more, if I just have a, a different wife, a different husband, 
I'm going to be satisfied. And that kind of contentment that we're looking for is like trying to grab smoke with your hands. You, you'll, you'll, ne- you'll never be successful. I mean, how many times do we have to suffer to learn this? It'll never satisfy you. Oh, for a moment, it'll feel good. For sure. Take the edge off. But it never ultimately satisfies. So why would we not learn that lesson? Even one of the saddest examples of this in scripture is Judas, who always had his money in the, you know, the money bag, right? Or his hand in the money bag. And here he is, um, I just saw Matt Sylvester back there. So I just kind of had a little thought. Hey, bro, good to see you. Um, he always had his money in the, in the, or his hand in the money bag. And he actually burned his best friend and betrayed Jesus in order to get ahead. How long did that satisfy? Not even, not even a few hours. The guilt set in. He goes running off to the religious leaders to try to make things right. They're like, take a hike. He casts his money back in there and he runs off and he takes his own life. Like what a sad man who thought money would satisfy and lost his life for it, literally. So if this sin is part of your life, the the word from the Lord today is confess it, find forgiveness, move forward, use your past to warn others and teach others that God's plans are always unsurpassed. So this brings us to the end of the Ten Commandments. Why obey the Ten Commandments? Well, when the Jews received these sacred words for the first time, they were accompanied by what we call a theophany, a manifestation of God. A theophany is an awe-inspiring appearance of God, where God invades the world in a special way and makes himself known. These words, when they were originally given to the Jewish people, were not arbitrary, but they positioned the people to experience and encounter God in a new way, which is, which is in some respects, the ultimate goal. I want to just read for you then, a little further down in Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21, to kind of set the context here where it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, this wasn't war, this was God manifesting himself, The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. Did you catch? Did you catch that? Is there there a mistake there in the text? Um, Contradiction? Do not fear for the Lord has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. We're told not to fear, but then we're supposed to fear. What's going on there? Well, in many ways, these commands are supposed to be fearful in the sense that they expose us to the holiness of God who will hold us to account obeying or disobeying them. But that's not really the point of the commandment. Moses' words, while they might seem contradictory, don't fear that you may fear him, are there to help us to understand 
that God is to be revered above and beyond all things. This is what true fear of the Lord is. It's obedience. Yes, it is knowledge. You got it in the back of your head. He, he could destroy the world. He is a wrathful God. He's a holy God. He's a perfect God. But I, I want to revere him. It's, it's kind of like a rough analogy is, is fathering, actually. So a bad father over here would be a father who's a tyrant. His kids are scared to death of him because he beats them, takes advantage of them, he abuses them. But equally dangerous, in fact, maybe not physically, but in terms of spiritual outcomes, is the passive father who has no expectations, who enforces nothing, who lets you get away with everything, including completely disrespecting and dishonoring him. That's dangerous as well. We probably have more in our culture. We probably have more men over here now. The balanced father is a father who is benevolent in love. But at the end of the day, his kids know, you know what? I'm not going to mess with dad. My dad is righteous. My dad is just. But I'm not going to cross him. Because I know that driven by the best interest for me, and in order to honor God, he will discipline me. And he will punish me if necessary. And this is, the, this is a healthy dynamic that Christian fathers aim for. And that's how we interact with God too. We, we know that God has our best interest in mind. He's benevolent and loving and gracious. He sent his eternal son to die for us. But our response then is not going to be, oh, I'm going to take advantage of him then. No, I, I'm going to obey him because I love him, because I know he loves me, but also because... Uh, probably not a great idea to mess with God. And that's how we live our, our spiritual lives. So with God's commandments, we obey these things, not out of fear of condemnation because we know God loves us and he will encourage us to, and, and equip us to, to put them into practice, but because God is holy and God will not let us get away with sin. And then we would finally say that as the church, the people of God put this into practice, even pagans benefit from this. You know, reduce in, uh, abuse in society is reduced. War, murder, killing, broken relationships, the effects that that has on children, it's reduced as God's people live in light of God's commandments. So being a blessing to the nation is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's also about living out the ethical commands of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world around us. And by making the world aware of God's law, to the degree that they fail to measure up, they become aware of their need for a gracious encounter with God and a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ.